Welcome to the Indisposable Podcast, produced by Upstream and supported this season by Patagonia. I'm your host, Brooking Gatewood. Thanks for joining for another episode celebrating solutions to plastic pollution. Welcome back, everybody, to the Indisposable Podcast. Today, we have with me two makers of mischief, magic, and mind bombs from Dancing Fox, a wee consultancy for disruptive ideas for a more beautiful world that's the love child of our guest today. We have Brian Fitzgerald, who in his 35 years at Greenpeace, held a lot of different roles, from door-to-door canvasser, to campaigner, to IT and communications director, to fundraiser, head of digital networking and mobilization, action coordinator, and master storyteller. Also a Greenpeace alum, we have Tommy Crawford, who's a poet, artist, idea generator, and survivor of an earlier career in both modeling and advertising, where he worked with a number of different brands, including Vivian Westwood, Unilever, and L'Oreal. While at Greenpeace, Tommy led a band of pirates and troublemakers to birth a new story for Greenpeace that completely transformed their strategy and way of working. And he was also the creative director of the Global Detox Campaign. Together, these two bring their storytelling superpowers to support a broad array of movements, from climate change to women's rights, ocean protection, and of course, the Break Free from Plastic movement. Lately, they've been studying COVID as a plot twist for our world, and are here to share some of their insights about how core social narratives are shifting in these unprecedented times, and how we can actually help shape that change. So Tommy and Brian, I always love the chance to speak with you guys, and I'm really uh, looking forward to this conversation. Likewise. Yeah, great to be with you today, Brooking. So let's start with talking about Dancing Fox, and what is it that's so mischievous and magical about your approach? So Dancing Fox is really, it's born upon this idea of beautiful disruption. So we know that disruption is a force that when it comes into our life, it very often causes us to change our life. And and activists in general often use negative disruption in order to convince people to donate or to take action, to sign a petition, to go to a protest, whatever it might be, by eliciting feelings of fear or anger or guilt this is the you know the the classic motif of the children with the swollen bellies or the the panda locked up in a cage or whatever it might be that then encourages people to take action out of out of outrage um very often um and what we really see is that whilst that can be an effective way of creating change in the short term there's other ways of doing it and also more joyful more playful more mischievous ways so the the analogy that we often use is a lot of activism is um, very similar to if you imagine a house party and the neighbors next door want the the house party to stop so they come round and you know they complain they call the police they hold up signs saying you know turn the music down or your music taste is terrible a lot of activism is basically standing outside complaining and being a bit of a party pooper we don't like this we want you to change we want this to stop And so the idea of beautiful disruption really works with this idea of what if instead of doing that, we just bought the house next door and threw a better party than the one that the the people are currently having such a magnificent party with such incredible guests. You know, there's Jimi Hendrix and David Bowie are jamming. You know, they've got amazing uh, um, cocktails. 
we've got incredible dancing, there's trampolines, um, you know, it's it's this incredible event. It's the more beautiful world that we want to be living in. And by throwing that alternative party, people naturally leave the party that's fueled by petrochemicals, that's fueled by fear, that's fueled by greed, that's fueled by consumption, and all of these challenges that we're facing, they naturally leave that one because there's something better, something more enticing, more marvelous, more magnificent for them to join. And so our work is really focused around collaborating with uh, nonprofits um, and different organizations who are trying to make the world a more beautiful place but using using all of the experience and and connections that we have from working in different places to to create this more invitational type of activism um, where a big element of it is combining artists and activists both brian and i have a an artist activist background and we find that that mix when we get 10 artists and 10 activists in the same room and cook up some trouble for two days, that alchemical mix, what comes out of that is always, always extraordinary. And what we're looking at a lot of the time is rather than trying to directly change something, rather looking at stories and exploring this idea of story hacking and culture hacking. So shifting these underlying stories we use to make sense of the world and shifting behavior and patterns through offering different types of stories um, that invite people into a different way of behaving and being in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I know from my work with you all in the Break Free from Plastic movement that you really brought in this idea of culture hacking. And I love the concept and um, would love to hear you talk about it a little more for our audience. Sure. So I think, you know, at its most basic level, culture hacking is about exploring this idea that human beings are herd animals, we're tribal animals, and we tend to do and follow what is normal. Um, we're constantly looking for um, information to alert us, like, how should I behave in this situation? What should I be doing? Um, and so what is normal in, within a society, within a culture is really, really important. And in essence, culture hacking is very much about shifting what is currently normal to making it weird if that normal behavior is damaging, for example, and then shifting what is currently fringe or unusual or weird and making that a normal behavior. And, you know, history is littered with examples of fantastic campaigns that have been able to do that, to make that shift, to make the weird normal and the normal weird. Yeah, so maybe Brian, I know um, I've heard you wax eloquent on some of those examples before. Maybe you could lay out um, some for us to hear. Yeah, I mean, part of it, part of what makes that easy for me is that I'm old and I've seen a lot of life. And uh, you know, in my lifetime, I've seen the um, the habit that was once completely normal of people lighting up a cigarette on an airplane become, you know possibly the weirdest thing that could possibly happen. If somebody today lit up a, a cigarette in the middle of a flight, you wouldn't need a stewardess or a policeman or the pilot to come back to enforce um, that rule. It's become a social norm that, you know, you'd be called out on it immediately. Um, but on a bigger scale, things like, you know, marriage equality or going back to the Victorian era, the, um, the corset, which was this incredible form of female torture that was the absolute norm. 
a woman did not appear outside of her home in London or in Boston unless she was wearing this incredibly restrictive garment. And the campaign to change that is really worth taking a look at. An amazingly uh, creative and effective introduction of what were called the bloomers, the bicycle suit. And this idea that uh, because you couldn't bicycle in a corset, obviously some other costume had to be come up with. And it was these loose-fitting Turkish trousers called the bloomers. And, uh, you know, women would wear these on the bicycle, but intentionally ride the bicycles through London in ways that sort of, you know, sent a signal that this was normal. And then would have, you know, picnics in the park where they would gather, they'd bike together, they'd have the numbers, they'd be secure in violating this norm and hang out at a picnic in their bicycle suit. And then eventually they'd start walking to the picnic in the bicycle suit. And little by little, they were chipping away at this uh, at the acceptability of uh, anything but the corset in society. And in a relatively you know, short time of you know, eight to 10 years, they completely changed the what was acceptable and, and, and what was normal in society. So I think these things can change much faster than we appreciate. If you look now what's happening with handshaking, um, it used to be the norm. Mm-hmm. Is it going to be the norm mm-hmm. when we come back out of the... Um, COVID crisis, I don't know. It's something that shifted really, really quickly. Yeah. One of my favorite examples that I think, Brian, you turned me on to at some point was uh, a marriage equality ad in Ireland. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that one as well. Oh, yeah. It was a terrific um, ad. You know, as you know, the marriage equality movement in Ireland had to work really, really hard to lose um, a lot of the activist language that they'd been using for a long time. You know, they've been speaking about gay rights. And um, when they did public opinion polling on this, they realized that that was resonating with people who already agreed with them. It was resonating with activists, um, but it was not resonating with the people that they had to reach to win the referendum, which was, you know, 50 plus men in Ireland. So, you know, they adopted and they shifted and they shifted their language to this idea of marriage equality and the idea of the unfairness of, of single sex marriages having to, you know, not being able to get married. And so, um, yeah, the ad that one group put out that was absolutely brilliant was just a, um, a fellow knocking on dozens and dozens and dozens of doors uh, saying, you know, I'd like to ask for Siobhan's hand in marriage. And uh, the people on the other side of the door saying, yes, okay. And it's kind of weird what's going on here. And then, um, you know, the kicker at the end of this is he's walking across the moor asking a woman that he runs into who's walking her dog, could I have Siobhan's hand in marriage? She says, yes. You know, how would you feel if you had to ask millions of people for permission to get married, um, which was happening, you know, during the referendum? And it just completely took the normal situation that you only asked to ha- have to ask one person to get married to, you know, having to have a referendum about whether you can get married or not. And the unfairness of that was obvious. It was a brilliant piece of um, culture hacking. Yeah, that one gives me chills every time. I just, I love it as an example. And the use of humor as well, you know, that it didn't come from an angry place. It came from a humorous place. That can be a tremendously powerful way to communicate. Yeah. One of the other things on my mind is, you know, some of these efforts, they use the power of public influencers or what I think you guys tend to call culture makers. And um, so maybe you all could speak a little more to the role of of those people who have influence in their communities to help shape this change. 
Absolutely. I think, you know, very often when we speak with with different groups that we're collaborating with and we say, OK, so who who's the target audience for this piece? And the most common response is the general public. Um, we'd like to convince the general public, please. Um, and so when you're looking to convince seven billion people or whatever we're at now on on the planet all at the same time, it's helpful to recognize and, and to understand that there are certain groups that we can communicate with, um, certain types of people that have huge amounts of influence within their networks. Now, obviously, people like celebrities or YouTube, YouTube influencers or something like that are obvious examples of this where they have you know millions of followers, for example. But in every in every group, um, you will always find certain people that have more sway, more influence. And so there's this idea of the culture makers and the culture shapers. Uh, the culture makers would be, for example, the people who queued up outside Apple to buy the first iPhone um, or the second iPhone or the third iPhone. These people who absolutely must have things first and who tend to experiment and try out new things much more, not only technology, but also fashion trends. It might be uh, it might be certain ways of behaving. It might be going on holiday to certain places. It might be all kinds of things, um, you know, trying new types of food, the new restaurant in town. Um, so there are certain people that that are almost like scouts. And these people are very powerful in terms of bringing in new behaviors or, or making abnormal behaviors more normal. They're the ones who tend to be on the edges trying things first. And a lot of activists fall into that group as well, of course. This way of organizing or doing things within our society needs to change. We need to be doing it like this. We need to be switching to veganism or we need to be addressing people in this way or we shouldn't be discriminating in this way so i'm not going to be part of it i'm going to be doing it this way so activists very often find themselves in this group but you have this second group which are equally important and they're the culture shapers and they're the ones who help take these more niche ideas and transform transmute play with them in such a way that they become much more acceptable for the mainstream um, and so they're the ones who then actually enable that shift that niche behavior uh, once the the innovators and the experimenters have kind of tried it and played with it to infiltrate and to spread th throughout the culture. And so by targeting these two groups, working with these two groups, collaborating with these two groups. Um, and again, that's one of the reasons why we often have artists and activists in our in our play shops when we run them is to bring these combination of of talents and types and personalities together. These groups together then have a disproportionately large influence on the rest of society. So they can be really, really fantastic to collaborate with if you do want to shift something from being uh, niche or weird and help make it normal together. The culture makers and the culture shapers can be really powerful at helping to bring this to light. Yeah, my mind is going to entrepreneurs as well as as a form of, of culture shaper. You know, I'm thinking about some interviews I've done with some of the founders of these companies that create reusable systems for cups and different products and things like that. Mm. And that, you know, there, there's something about having that option that's easy and convenient versus having to 
seem like the hippie carrying their cup around everywhere, right? Um, absolutely. That I think is also helping make the change. Absolutely, absolutely, exactly. So you've got that's that's a perfect example, Brooking, because you've got these these culture makers who are like, hey, the way we're doing things now is madness. We're throwing everything away. We're only using it once. There must be a better way. So they start doing that alternative way, but that alternative way might seem weird. It might seem hippie. It might seem inconvenient. It might seem abnormal, too difficult, too expensive, whatever it might be. But these people are like, I don't care. You know, uh, our friend Kate, who's been plastic free for a decade, you know, she's so committed and she will travel everywhere with everything she needs in her bag. And she's come up with all of these hacks and she's an incredible influence and inspiration. Are you talking about Kate, the plastic free mermaid? We absolutely are. Yeah. 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 So, we have an episode with her for those who want to hear more about her story. She's awesome. Yeah. So she's amazing. And, you know, she's an absolute culture maker. She's a pioneer. The challenge is that there's all kinds of people who are like, that's great. I'm not going to do it, though. That's great. But that's mm-hmm. I, I can't do that. Or that's too difficult for me. Or that's not possible. Or I just don't understand how or whatever it might be. And so you need other groups of people who can look at that and be like, wow, this is really interesting what these this this small group of people is doing. How can we scale that? How can we make that more convenient? How can we make that more aspirational? How can we make that more possible, whatever it might be, whatever angle they're looking at it from. But they then help to essentially translate that pioneering behavior and facilitate that being adopted by much more people, uh, by many more people, sorry. And so entrepreneurs really do play a, a key role in this culture shaping aspect of culture change. And I think what links the three, those three tribes of entrepreneurs and artists and activists is they're, you know, they all in some sense have a dissatisfaction or a restlessness with the status quo. And, uh, you know, Laurie Anderson has this beautiful description of, of artists, and I think it's true of activists and entrepreneurs as well as these sort of radar units that pick up weak signals from the future and amplify them back into society. Um, but then you need people to actually take those signals and turn them into, you know, as Tommy says, you know, cultural movements, cultural artifacts, things that demonstrate that um, it's not just a weak signal from the future. It's something that's happening today and now. Hmm. And on that note, I, I'd love to hear what other examples you're seeing, particularly within the space of the plastic pollution movement, just to ground some of these ideas and some of the work that a lot of our listeners are thinking about. Sure. I mean, if we think about, you know, norm uh, engineering or uh, the sort of signals that are being sent in society, I uh, I really love the work that's been done around straws. And, you know, and I think that's the value of that campaign is not obviously the actual sort of reduction in the number of straws in the environment, although every little bit helps. But that tiny fraction of the plastic pollution problem isn't the point of that campaign. The point of that campaign, I think, is that um, it sent this signal rippling through society, certainly in the U.S. and and I think even more so in the U.K., that disposable single-use plastic is a problem, that there are people who are concerned about it, there there are people taking action about it, and that it's of you know such a magnitude that my city or my county or my state is taking action against it. And, you know, that's the sort of, we need many, many more examples of that sort of thing, but it's the kind of campaign that uh, echoes 
I think with the um, uh, success of the efforts against smoking in the 1980s and 90s were in the United States, where you know so many people had heard the warnings about health effects and that wasn't really making a dent in the, the pattern of smoking in the U.S. What really made a difference was smoke-free zones, where you know every day people were seeing uh, an example of the fact that smoke, smoking was being marginalized in society, and that sense that, ah, I have to get up from my desk, walk into a smoke smoking zone, or walk out of the building in order to have a cigarette, and that every single time that happened, it was sending a signal that this is not normal, this is exceptional, this is fringe. And the more that we send that signal that single-use plastic is not acceptable, that it's not normal, that it's fringe, you know, we start to shift the, the, the norm. And that has a knock-on effect and a ripple effect that every single legislator, every th- single policymaker in a company, you know, is being exposed to that signal. And you don't know, you know, how much of an effect that's going to have when deep in the zeitgeist and deep in people's sort of perception of the world is this idea that yeah, single-use plastic, it's a problem and we need to do something about it. Those two simple facts are lodged um, you know, deep in people's, in people's psyche. And I think that's the real trick is let's figure out how to make that signal as strong and as frequently repeated as possible in order to make it stick. Yeah. Yeah, and this draws. I'm glad you use this draws example because I I do feel like that's a good place where there's there's kind of a fundamental misunderstanding a lot of the time where um, people who don't think like you guys do about this. I'm thinking about the iceberg metaphor, you know, and it seems like straws is is literally a tip of the iceberg, and why focus so much attention mm-hmm. there? But part of what I'm hearing you say is that at a cultural level, which is the root of the iceberg, it's actually really hacking away at something meaningful. Um, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, you have to do that with something that's visible and present in people's daily lives. It really, you know, um, water bottles is another great example. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's, it's those sort of things because there are, you know, we're constantly, constantly monitoring, as Tommy said at the outset, for what is normal. What are other people doing? What is, what is the social signal here? Um, and, you know, we do... <laughs> I do an exercise with folks when we uh, when we do our play shops, where I ask them to imagine a, a box and to hold out their hand with their imaginary box and to show it to their neighbor, show it to their friends, and that. And um, when I've done the example, I've said I've held up my hands, you know, about four inches apart, and said, "Actually, show me your box and sh- show it to show it to your neighbor, etc." And um, you know, everyone makes a box of exactly the same size as I've demonstrated with my hands because. In a situation where um, human beings as tribal animals are uncertain what to do, the first thing that they're going to do is exhibit any behavior that they see around them. So getting into that zeitgeist of making sure we're hacking at something so common that there's an everyday signal that single use is weird, it's not normal, it's dangerous, and people are doing something about it, um, the better off we're going to be in the long term. Yeah, yeah, and I think maybe that's a good spot, too, to pivot to talking about what's on a lot of people's minds right now, and that is the issue of this pandemic situation we're facing right now in 2020 in the U.S. and around the world. And, you know, you've talked a little bit about the handshaking norm shift that's happening with that already, and there's so much disruption to behavioral norms with covid 
Um, but I also know you guys have been t- looking at it from a bigger picture, kind of what does it mean in our the mythic level of stories that we tell ourselves. So tell us a little more there. Yeah, I mean, we used to um, talk about the the classic example of uh, of a of a of a story that becomes so powerful that it becomes a myth, that it un- it's the underlying explanation of a society. It creates rituals, and one example would be the American Dream. And I saw my own sort of father shape his life, and my grandfather um, pack up his things from Ireland and you know sail across an ocean because he believed in this story of land of equal opportunity where you know you could become successful through hard work rather than the situation that you were born into and um jonah sachs uh, coined this idea of the the myth gap for what happens when that sort of fundamental story that explains a society and makes everyone comfortable with where they are and what their place is and what they do on a daily basis uh, gets eroded to the point that People don't believe it anymore, and that happened in 2008 with the you know economic crash and the, the financial crisis, where you couldn't believe that America was a land of economic opportunity, equal opportunity. When you looked around and you saw the authors of this incredible collapse, where people lost their pensions and their homes and their their livelihoods, and hundreds of thousands of people committing suicide all over the world as a result of this, and. And then seeing the the authors being bailed out with um, uh, golden parachutes and that sort of thing. So when that myth no longer explained America, another story had to rush in to replace it. Because one thing the human mind cannot tolerate is an absence of story. There always has to be a story. And so two stories rushed in to fill that gap. One was the 99% and the 1%. The idea that, no, America is not a land of equal opportunity. There are... 1% 1% that are benefiting uh, inequally, and then the 99% below that. Unfortunately, the other story that rushed into that vacuum was, yeah, we need to make America great again. We need to go back to those sort of 1950s values and that 1950s sort of picture where America was very comfortable, particularly for white men, and restore that dream. And you know, those two stories are fundamentally in conflict with each other. And Jonah talks about story wars. And the idea that these stories battle for dominance and battle for the place of being the one that explains the world. And I think what happened with COVID is, you know, an absolute fundamental earthquake of so many of the stories that once explained the world are suddenly uh, exposed as uh, no longer true. And I think the biggest one really is the idea that, you know, you can't stop business as usual. I think anyone who's worked on social change or activism for the last 10 years has always been up against this this idea that the economy as it exists is just this juggernaut, which is absolutely unstoppable, and we can't make the smallest decision to you know look after each other or look after our planet if it's going to mean costing jobs or costing this month's GDP. And look how fast that changed. You know, suddenly when people's lives were genuinely in danger. We collectively made the decisions to stay home. And, you know, I loved, I saw a description of, you know, don't look out on these empty streets and these empty stadiums and these empty trains as this sort of vision of sort of apocalyptic earth. They are, you know, signals of love. They are a testament to how much we love one another, that we are willing 
to take these steps to look after our elders and the people at risk and the people who are the most vulnerable in society. And I think that's absolutely the way to look at that. And so you've got this place where the story that explains the world is crumbling. Something's going to rush in there to fill it. Let's make sure that the stories that do rush in there to fill that gap are stories that are going to help us be kinder to each other and help us be kinder to the earth in the future because it's a fantastic opportunity to shift the normal, shift people's sense of what's right, what's possible. Yeah. Yeah, that simple example you just gave about seeing the empty streets as as love is is really powerful. And as you guys have been watching this earthquake, to use Brian's term, unfold over the last couple of months, I'm really curious to hear how you see the landscape shifting, so to speak, with certain stories having more power, certain stories losing their power. What are you seeing um, beyond the example Brian gave, which is a great one, but I, I know there's a lot of other stories being affected as well. Absolutely. So this is a really pivotal moment in time where so many of the stories that have been governing and influencing the way that we behave both as individuals and as society are really shifting underneath our feet. Um, and stories that maybe have been around, have been present, but haven't necessarily been really central to the way that we've organized culturally are now becoming more and more obvious, more and more clear. So one example of that would be this idea that everything is connected. Um, which if you go back to lots of indigenous communities and ancient wisdom, this is a story that's been told again and again about the, you know, the great web of life, the hoop of life, how everything we do, every action that we have, every behavior has an impact, has an influence, as Brian was alluding to earlier. Um, but what coronavirus has really shown is, is it's made aspects of that story even more visible. This idea that one person can go out, for example, before lockdown was enforced, that people could go out to um, a party and if they had the virus, they then might infect 10 people, that then each one of those might then infect 10 people. And then how this can spread really, really, really quickly, this invisible threat suddenly becomes much more visible because we see the impact of the decisions that we make to go to the party or to not go to the party, to visit our grandmother or to not visit our grandmother. And so this idea that everything is connected and, and the story that accompanies that of every choice matters, which the plastic movement, for example, is something we've been talking with them about. As Brian was saying, if it really does matter if you turn up with your reusable water bottle or your canvas tote instead of a plastic bag, or if you say to the barman, actually, no, uh, I don't want a, a straw in my cocktail, thank you, or whatever it might be, like these things really do matter. They have that ripple effect, that butterfly effect. And what coronavirus is doing is making some of these stories much more visible. Another big one that we've really been seeing have an enormous impact right now is this idea that health is wealth. Um, so true, true wealth actually comes not from having lots of money or possessions, but, but being healthy. Again, maybe something that we understand, we know that can feel a little bit um, twee or hallmarky. Um, and certainly not something that 
a lot of governments around the world are taking particularly seriously, they will be massively prioritizing money making over people's health. And, and we see that with plastic when it comes to the factories, the pollutions coming out of the factories, the people living close to those factories and, and all of the illnesses and, and impact that that has. So choices being made where money is really prioritized over health, over the environment, over lots of other things. And then this big, big shift we're seeing now where some governments are taking measures, taking precautions, um, acting in certain ways that actually say, no, health is more important. Health is true wealth. And as Brian was saying as well, people voluntarily deciding to stay at home or to limit exposure to certain groups of people or vulnerable people or whatever it might be. So the living out of these stories, because stories grow in power, both when they're told more regularly, when they're amplified, when they're repeated, but also when they're lived. And what we're seeing in in this environment right now is that certain stories that have maybe been um, present for a long time, but not necessarily lived out in people's behaviours and actions, are now on a much bigger scale being lived out, enacted, ritualized and that's having a huge impact and and if that if that continues and if we continue to to amplify and to embody these stories then that's going to have a massive impact on things like plastic pollution but also on all kinds of other issues in the future because if if people if corporations if nonprofits if governing bodies are actually genuinely taking the story that health is wealth seriously that everything is connected, that every choice matters, then we're going to see very different types of behavior, very different types of policy decisions. And it's going to be a completely different environment in which we can have conversations um, and engage with each other than one where we're swimming in a story universe that's much more about money makes the world go round or time is money or the only the only measure of success within our economy is how much GDP is increasing or whatever it might be. That's a very different environment to be operating in as a change maker and as an imagineer of a different type of future than the one that we're currently swimming in now. And the opportunity is there for change makers and artists and activists to actively be part of amplifying and embodying these stories so that in the future, again, we're, we're, we're operating in a, a completely different story universe. I would add there that um, you know one of the most important stories that we've seen unfold in this environment was the story of flattening the curve, and you know if you look at what the projections were for deaths and and cases around the world, if no action was taken, and then compare what happened in those countries where you know people really did take individual action and governments took actions where people reached up and pulled that curve down and. That idea, that simple idea that we can, together with an enlightened government policy and individual actions, make a massive impact on an existential threat, that's an absolutely key lesson for climate change, for plastic pollution, for all the, the threats that we're facing. And I think if there's one powerful story that's come out of this, it's you know flattening the curve is tremendously rich territory for us to be repeating it and mining that um, the lessons in that story. Yeah, I'm thinking you know I've worked a lot of my life in various corners of environmental movement, and there's a lot of exponential curves. I've also worked on diabetes, and you know we talk about that as a slow-moving pandemic in its own way, right? Um, 
and these things that seems like there's no way we could bend the curve or flatten the curve, as you say, but we're seeing that we really can. And yeah, my mind goes quickly to the climate crisis. And, and if, if we can mobilize like this around a pandemic, can we mobilize like, like this around climate change? Um, exactly. Yeah. You know, and on that note, I want to acknowledge a tension here that might not seem as important three years from now when we have a vaccine, but I think there's a principle at play that if we keep talking about it in a COVID context, it's going to be relevant for whatever disruptions we're working with in the moment. Um, but, you know, I think for a lot of groups who have been working on some of these other exponential growth problems uh, for the last many decades, one of the challenges right now is that all of our international attention is focused on this virus. And so there's this question of relevance for other issues that still are important, but are not getting attention in the same way. And I know in marketing, there's this idea that a relevant message trumps a remarkable message. So I'm seeing a lot of groups really pivot to try to focus on COVID right now. But I'm also hearing you guys say that maybe it's more powerful to focus on amplifying these deeper stories that are being expressed right now through COVID that in the long run are really going to help us. So I'd like to hear you guys explore that a little bit too. No, I think that that's exactly right. And, um, you know, I've been in this game for a long time and I I know, you know, the the temptation in activism is always to be dealing with the threat that you feel is like this week or this month or immediate. Um, And we don't often just, just pay attention to the fact that there are you know, there are long-range strategies. There are long-term strategies that we need to put in place. And um, this sort of building up of these stories that are going to serve us in the future, I think, is, is absolutely essential. And, and looking, taking a step back, uh, you know, MobLab put out this, this beautiful call to activists saying, you know, everyone else working on activism or social change right now needs to look at our power analysis, examine our strategies, think about what we're doing and adjust because this is, you know, this is the moment that um, the things are shifting. I think that's, that's precisely right. And I think there's an awful lot that we can do to speak about the stories that bridge the plastic pollution issue to the climate issue to the COVID crisis. That makes it relevant communications, and it's it's absolutely relevant to talk about, um, you know, our actions having consequences, and it's it's completely relevant to talk right now about the the importance of of paying attention to not endangering people who are on the margins, and you know those messages are true and relevant for COVID, and they're true and relevant for plastic, and I think. You know, if you're talking about those threats and you're talking about those stories, you know, as a representative of a particular view on plastic pollution, you're going to make an association in people's minds. And the association of the threat of plastic pollution with the threat of COVID is an important one. And I think it's a valid one. You know, COVID may be a more immediate um, threat to people's lives, but it's it's no less of a threat than plastic pollution is ultimately to the to the health of our planet and to people's lives and to the lives of you know the creatures that we share this world with. And so I think our reptilian brains are really attuned right now to lessons of what we've done wrong or what we could do better when we face a threat like this in the future, because that's what our reptilian brains do. They pay attention to threat. They're very good at it. And so 
the more that we're associating the threat of plastic pollution, the threat of climate change with the threat of COVID, the more our brains are going to be saying, you know, um, are we doing enough to be proactive about this in a way that we were not in the COVID crisis? Are we doing enough to listen to science on this thing the way that we did not in the COVID crisis? Are we doing enough to make sure that, um, you know, we change in ways that we know we can change because we, we changed because of the COVID crisis? Yeah. Yeah, it seems to me too, like one of the things I reflect on about this is that there's a there's a viscerality to this biological virus threat that kind of wakes us up in a different way than we are designed for. You know, we're not really designed to think about long term systemic issues like climate change. And I feel like plastic pollution has been able to be effective so quickly, partly because it's more visceral and tangible than climate change. And then this virus is another level where we're talking about something very real that it could affect our bodies tomorrow, right? And so this idea of of leveraging the way that affects us biologically and primally um, to help us see that these other issues are actually just as serious, I, I do wonder if there's a real opportunity there. One, one thing I would say to that, Brooking, is maybe flipping the whole thing round as well and saying, because we're talking about threats here, the threat of the virus versus the threat of climate change versus the threat of plastic pollution. But if we look at the the opportunity, let's say, or the, the possibility, what's so interesting about coronavirus and what it's led to in terms of um, policy and behavioral changes. So people spending lots of time at home, some people not necessarily working, um, people not commuting, maybe people spending more time with their kids, maybe people valuing spending more time outside if the amount of time outside is being restricted in the place that you live. All of these different things. What What's happening is people are getting a taste of a different way of being, a different way of moving. You know, we spoke before about about people like Kate, visionaries who can see what the future needs to look like and already start creating it, basically, already start living in it. Um, for lots of people, that's very tricky. They need they need some kind of experience. They need some kind of taste, some kind of visceral, um, picking up on what you were saying there, some kind of visceral, tangible, lived experience to be like, oh, that's what it could be like. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, one of the stories that we're exploring that we, we spoke about a lot, one of the reasons why there's so much plastic pollution, particularly single use, is because we live in this very fast world where convenience is very important because I don't have time to make my own coffee. I don't have time to cook my own food. I don't have time uh, to do all of these different things. So I need quick, convenient, um, packaged solutions to those different things. And at the moment, some people, not everyone, but some people are experiencing a world where there is more time, where there is less rushing, where there is less doing and more opportunity to be, to witness, to allow things to unfold, to do things differently, to make their own coffee to cook more at home you know when i go to the the supermarket where i'm based you cannot get flour for a hundred miles because everyone is baking and you know instagram is full of people trying out sourdough and crumpets and cakes and all of the rest of it so there's this this explosion of people cooking baking and trying and doing all kinds of things that maybe they didn't have time for before so i think what's 
really interesting here is that people are having a taste of doing things differently. Now, we're not suggesting that this is how things should continue forever, but there are certainly aspects of this that we may want to take forward. Brian was talking about something earlier. I think it was in the UK. Brian, what was the number of people who didn't want to go back to how it was before? Uh, only 9% wanted to return to exactly the same situation they were in previous to the COVID epidemic. Wow. This was a YouGov poll. Yeah. So 91% of people wanting to, let's say, return to something better. And, you know, if you look at these surveys as well of, of people who are like, actually, you know, working from homes challenging, but amazing. And, and I really appreciate not having to be on a a train or in my car in a traffic jam or whatever for an hour or two hours every day and and all of the value that I get from being able to have lunch with with my beloved or with my kids or whatever it might be so there's all kinds of interesting shifts happening there and there's this idea of kind of maybe maybe mother earth press the pause button to give us time to dream of what a slow down world looks like and to explore and to live in that more slowed down reality so the aspects of that can be stuff that we take forward and as brian was saying that we don't have to go back to this kind of this frantic rush that fuels a lot of this convenience culture and this plastic pollution so there's something really interesting here in terms of the viscerality and the experiential nature of what what is happening for people right now that's giving them this this taste of a possible different way of being. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm reminded myself hearing you say that about, you know, the research on behavior and habit change, and it takes 30 days to, to create real shifts. And in a sort of silver lining kind of way, it's fortunate that we've been in this situation for longer because there's a greater chance that some of these pieces people want in terms of the shifts in their lives will be able to last. Um, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you, and it feels like it's related to what we're just talking about, but sort of the what can we do question, what can we do to support and amplify these stories and the opportunities coming out of COVID to help us all be able to move into that better world? Yeah, I mean, one of the um, one of the things that I've been aware of is that with so many people in lockdown, the use of social media, of course, has been through the roof and people are paying more attention to social media. And you know, I think we shape the zeitgeist with everything we share. We shape the zeitgeist with everything we choose to amplify. And I think that's one place where, you know, people can have a tremendously powerful effect in shaping the conversation around them. The other thing I think is really important is, you know, making the conscious effort to going out and finding the stories of generosity and kindness that are out there. I've loved following the Twitter hashtag Corona Kindness and a website that was set up called Coronavirus, which is Karuna is, happens to be Sanskrit for uh, compassion. And um, both of these are, are just places where people are sharing the incredible stories of the creativity and the generosity and the love that people have been expressing for each other and looking after each other. And it's really important because, you know, our mainstream media is always going to be a function of that reptilian brain. It's always going to be focused on threat. If it bleeds, it leads. And you really have to make an effort. I like to think of it, it's like um, gratitude journaling. 
Um, if you start a journal of things that you're grateful for in your daily life, it trains your brain to be looking for what you're going to journal that day. And so, you know, it shifts your filter very subtly to looking for um, those stories of hope and generosity, the positive stories of how humanity really behaves in a crisis. Rebecca Solnit wrote an entire book about this um, that's, uh, you know, tremendous about its, its, its communities coming together and thriving in the face of these crises. It's not the zombie apocalypse individualism that Hollywood so loves, yeah. but you need to look for it, you know? You know, I'm going to ask you guys a hard question and we can cut this, but I'm so curious what you'll say and maybe it will be helpful. But one of the things that's also happening in coronavirus is the major inequities that were already existing in our social system have been highlighted and amplified. And one of the tensions that I feel with the focusing on the positive is the risk of acknowledging the pain and suffering. And so I'm kind of curious how you guys relate with that piece, because I, I know there's a both and there, and I'd like to just hear you speak on it a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I think that so much of what is happening now is this this amplification, both of the good and of the bad um, and the making visible. Uh, Michael Mead talks about one of the meanings of apocalypse um, is actually the lifting of the veil. Um, and so what's going on now, if you want to look at it in that way, is that lots of things that were potentially hidden or only seen by certain groups in certain places are now being witnessed and seen by many more people and actually also impacting upon and affecting more people. And so when it comes to communicating, when it comes to working with these things, it's absolutely essential and truly important to acknowledge what's going on to acknowledge the inequality, but also how long this has been going on for um, and how invisible it has been making some people feel in the eyes of policymakers, decision makers, but also in the eyes of, of, of certain activists and artists who are, who are working in certain types of ways. So honouring and acknowledging that is important. And also then it's about collaborating listening and creating together with those who have been most affected. Um, and so again, this goes back to a lot of the work that we're doing, the, the play shops that we run. It's really important that the people who are most impacted are, are in the room, are collaborating, are co-creating. Um, one of the stories that we've seen ring true again and again and again is this idea that solutions often come from unexpected places. And often it's the most forgotten, the most uh, marginalized, the most silenced, who have the most incredible ideas, solutions, visions for how to change things. So a big part of this is about listening, honoring, and then co-creating, because absolutely, you know, if we want to create a different type of world, we can't be relying on those who got us into this situation in the first place. Um, to be coming up with a new way of doing things. It really has to be more inclusive. It has to be more daring. It has to be more playful. Uh, Oscar Wilde said, any idea that isn't dangerous is not worthy of being considered an idea at all. So, you know, playing with this idea of dangerous ideas, collaborating, bringing together unexpected groups, and really um, 
taking the time and again this is something that's not always common in activism um, because you know it's the rush to fix things but taking the time to work with people to hear their stories to understand the depth of what's going on and from that place of deep listening um, arise these incredible ideas and solutions there's something circling in this about the role of anger in activism and i think you know there's there's so much in the world that, that makes all of us just freaking angry um but at some point you know that is it's very difficult to sustain anger it's very difficult to invite people to action with anger and so there's a you know there's a translation of that anger that has to um that has to happen and i think part of what makes an effective activist is is someone who can take their anger and treat it like an artist. It is it is raw material, and you have to make something out of it that um, that may not resemble what you started. You know, you, what originally took you on this path um, may cause you to create something that's entirely different. And um, that that process of transformation, I think, is uh, you know, it's a fractal image of what we're trying to do with humanity in general. I mean, I think it comes down to a question of, do we believe that the default state of humanity is this, you know, horror of individualist, racist, inequality, spewing um, race to be on the top of the mountain? Or is it that, you know, we need to make sure that everyone thrives and that we all are in this together uh, concept? And I think if you come from a place where ultimately what humanity is about is much more of that model of community and being in this together than the aberration of the other, then it becomes a question of subsuming that other and challenging it, but from a position of confidence that that's aberration. That's, that's that behavior that Maya Angelou talked about, where you know you do your best until you know better. And when you know better, you do better. And that that's an ongoing process that we're doing with each other as human beings living together in a, on a single limited planet. Yeah. I'm also coming back to where we started with Tommy talking about which party do you want to be at? And do you want to be yelling outside the door of the party and having nobody listen or just move in next door and throw a better party? You know, so much of what I did as an activist was just boring. It was really, really boring. I look back on it and, you know, I'm very proud of much of what I did. But at the same time, you know, where was the, where was the art? Where was the beauty that there was always an opportunity to bring to mm -hmm. it? Yeah, Brian, I really appreciate you bringing that in because I know, you know, not, every, not all our listeners are necessarily activists, but I think a lot can relate with what you're talking about and these challenges. So I appreciate the chance to talk about it with you guys. And, you know, sometimes I'll ask guests, how do you stay positive working on these challenges? But with you guys, it feels more appropriate since fun is sort of your, your specialty to ask, uh, what advice do you have for others on how to stay positive and, you know, still inclusive to Tommy's points, but to keep the work fun and to bring the art and the beauty into it. Yeah, you know, I actually get this question a lot. People look at my white whiskers and, and the fact that I'm still at this. And, you know, I tell them I sometimes feel like that, that, that guy at some climate protest with a cardboard sign that says, I can't believe I'm still protesting this stuff. Um, but it's a really good question. And it's, it's something I've, I've reflected on a lot because I've never been quite sure 
what it is that um, that sort of accounts for that resilience. But I think part of it is, you know, something that um, Tommy mentioned to me that um, that I think is absolutely true is the importance of being around people that inspire you, being around ideas inspiring you, seeking out ideas that inspire you, not just in activism, but in day-to-day life, you know, when you follow your creativity out into those weird paths that are that are off the beaten road, it can be really surprising how often those things will wind back into activism. And I've seen it again and again where, you know, uh, adventures in, in programming or poetry will just have these weird ripple effects that, that come back and can be extremely wonderful and useful. And and also give you a you know a break from staring at the horror of the world and the the awfulness of the the issues that we're working on. So I, I think that's really important. And you know, there's something to be said for looking for um, looking for the success stories, reminding yourself of the extraordinary things that people working together have accomplished over the years. And you know, remembering Bob Hunter once said that you know the nature of big change is that it seems impossible when you start. And inevitable when you finish, and I think that's that's absolutely true, and it's absolutely tragic because when we look back with hindsight, we think that oh, you know, of course apartheid would have ended, or of course women would have gotten the right to vote. That's just an insane way of looking at the world, and ultimately that would have just fallen over by itself. That does a disservice to the fact that you know activists were working on those issues when they were impossible, when they were told that they were crazy and that it's not normal and that you can't do that and that's not right. And some of them risked their lives for those issues. And yet for us today to look back and say, well, yeah, that was sort of inevitable that would happen. I will be fine in two decades if people are looking back on all of us who are working against plastic pollution, against climate change, and they say, oh, yeah, that was a crazy way of running a planet. Um, that, that ultimately would have fallen by the wayside of its own you know, idiocy. That's fine. I think we'll all be okay with that, um, provided we get there. And I think part of what we need to remember is that when the odds do seem impossible, it's a good indicator that you're working on big change. Yeah, and and I'm grateful for whoever worked on that corset change, because <laughs> as a woman, I'm sure glad I don't have to wear those. <laughs> um, yeah, well, thank you guys so much. I mean, it really, I feel like you guys are just founts of wisdom on these things, and, and you help us all think, uh, you know, deeper and bigger picture, and from that story level, and Brian, I love what you said, that the human brain can't handle a moment without story, and so we need to be conscious and intentional about what stories we're amplifying and supporting. And I hope everybody listening is seeing the ways that we can in our own lives as influencers in our own communities and through our social media engagement, um, do that intentionally and really feel the impacts just like we wear our mask and we know it matters the way that we relate with these stories matters. So thank you guys so much for your time, for the work you do. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. Okay. And uh, dancingfox.com for those who would like to find out more about the work that Brian and Tommy do. They each have their own personal websites. They are, as they have both mentioned, artists on the side. Brian writes children's books, for example, and he's at www.brian-fitzgerald.net. Tommy is a poet and collaborates in all sorts of interesting ways with artists and musicians. And you can find out more about what he's up to outside of his day job at therightkindoftrouble.com. 
Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you, Brooking. And that's our show. If you like what you're hearing, help spread the word. Subscribe to the Indisposable Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Add a review, talk us up. Nobody spreads a message like you. The Indisposable Podcast is brought to you by Upstream, sparking innovative solutions to plastic pollution, envisioning a world without it, and empowering businesses, communities, and individuals to imagine and co-create this future with us. You can find resources mentioned on today's episode as well as learn more about Upstream's work at www.upstreamsolutions.org. Follow us on social and join the movement. There's a better way than throwaway.